Hi, everyone. It's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the global investment and merchant bank. Kindred Media is a diversified media advisory and investment company that works alongside content creators in the audio and digital communities. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm Alex Michael, co-head of Lion Tree Growth here at Lion Tree. I always say we have a fantastic guest. We have a fantastic guest today. I mean it. It's Bohan. Bohan is the founder and CEO of really one of the more exciting sports concepts I've seen in a long time, a company called Buzzer. Buzzer is transforming how we engage with sports, how we consume live sports. It's a mobile first business that is taking the greatest moments in sports wherever they may happen and allowing you to subscribe at that moment to watch it. There's much more to it. Bo will describe it much better than myself, but Bo started this business a couple of years ago. He was running global live sports content partnerships at Twitter for many years. He's a graduate of Cornell University and Columbia Business School. Fascinating story. Bo, welcome to Kindred Cast. Alex, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Bo, I did not do justice to Buzzer. And we're investors here, so I got to get this better here. You have built this super interesting business. Can you do a better job of describing Buzzer than I just did? Yeah, Buzzer is a mobile-first notification-based platform that allows you to buy moments on a micropayments basis. So uh, let's take last night's Hornet Magic game. It came down to the wire. The score was 100, 104, with two minutes left in the fourth quarter, with Miles Bridges lighting it up. When you're getting on Twitter, you see tweets saying this is an exciting game and everyone is going nuts about it. And if you're watching the game, amazing. You're contributing to the conversation, uh, engaging with those tweets. But if not, I'm sure we all have those moments where we have that sudden sense of panic of, Where's the nearest TV or sports bar? What channel is it on? What subscription is it part? By the time you figure all that out, that two minutes is gone. And so in tech speak, what we're essentially building is that last mile technology when it comes to live and ephemeral moments in sports and connecting that moment with fans who are leaned in and would be willing to watch. So that is a quick description. I mentioned this business to a lot of people, and we'll also talk about your superstar investors of all varieties, but I bring this business up to just the average person. And universally, the feedback is, that's a great idea. That's an amazing idea. There's so much clutter in our world. There's so many things going on. And this is also a preference-based business in that you put in who you like to follow, whether it's a player, a team, a sport, and thus a, the idea that you just get notified that it's going on, which again, in this cluttered world, we don't tend to know in a fragmented media landscape. But then two, the idea that you could actually watch it in that moment with 99 cents, 2.99, whatever the pricing is. Everyone loves this idea. 
But why now? Why is this happening now? What was the inspiration and how can this be a massive business? Yeah, that's a great question and observation. I mean, I tell my team repeatedly every day, right team, right product, right time, right? Why is the time right right now? And there are three kind of broad trends or uh, macros that are happening in the industry. The first is the fragmentation of sports rights. Let's take NHL, for example. NHL went from being on NBC to now being on ESPN, ESPN Plus, and Turn. Right? And so for one league, we fragmented it three times. But let's just take your beloved Washington teams, the Washington football team. I'm a New York fan. Please okay. stop. Okay. Stop. Okay. 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 So let's say uh, New York Giants, yeah. right? Which is not that better anyways, but okay, <laughs> Alex. If you want to watch the Giants, depending on what time, when they play, you need different subscriptions and different channels, right? And so if they're playing on a Sunday afternoon, you need CBS or Fox. If they're playing on Sunday night football, you need NBC, Monday night football, ESPN, Thursday night football, Amazon. We're looking at four or five different channels or subscription just to watch your beloved team, right? You compound that with English Premier League, Championship League. Even the same team that plays in different tournaments, they play it you have to access it through a different subscription. That is one where it doesn't really mirror around a sports fan in your interest. Second is you have this generational gap when it comes to consumption of live sports. You have the older generation that are still consuming full-length live games that are optimized for linear television, but you have this younger generation, specifically Gen Z and younger millennials, that are purely consuming highlights and clips that are really optimized for Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram. There's an issue there. First and foremost is that we as an industry can agree that the most valuable IP that any sports entity has is media rights. Look at the past 18 months. The only thing that sustained value throughout all of this, despite of not having stadiums full or viewership going down, is the fact that media rights still sustain. When your most valuable IP is no longer consumed by your future consumer, that poses a little bit of a question regarding the sustainability of those media rights. So how do we engage with that future audience so that that valuable IP does sustain in the long term? And then secondly is leagues and the rights holders don't have direct relationships with the younger fans because they're all engaging in their content on social platforms like TikTok and Twitter. And TikTok and Twitter is not sharing the first party data to the leagues or rights holders. You have no line of sight of who your future fan is. And third and lastly, we are living this every day now, is the bundling and unbundling of media. We're in this unbundled stage. Even if you don't have cable, you're sitting on four, five, six different subscriptions, SVODs, that don't talk to one another. And so now Alex may have five subscriptions, and you don't know what's playing where and how to access them. Curation and live discoverability of these fleeting moments are incredibly difficult. And so that kind of leads to what we're building at Buzzer and how we aim to address those macros. One is micropayments. I dive deeper into it, but unless you want to chime in here. Well, no, it's very ambitious, but keep going with the micropayments because you've got to unite such a, to your point, distributed, disaggregated ecosystem between the leagues, the teams, the distributors, the rights holders. It is ambitious what you're building, but keep going with the, how it's working with the micro-payments and then I'll it get It is ambitious, that. and I, I totally agree. The one thing I did learn during my time at Twitter is that in order to innovate, you don't always have to disrupt or destroy. You can complement. By complementing, you have to be incredibly thoughtful and intentional about how we build our products. We're building three products to start. 
versus micropayments, meaning pay for content that you want to watch and when you want to launch it. We currently live in a marketplace where consumers are fatigued by subscription products. And to be quite honest, the market is getting pretty saturated with subscription products, as I mentioned with the unbundled point. Second is, actually the first product is, the last thing we want to do is create another subscription product that competes with everyone else, that destroys everyone else's you know, business model. So we want to complement the subscription model out there. The way that we always see it is that micropayments over time should justify the economics of the subscription. You're just targeting a very different customer that wouldn't normally initially subscribe. So that kind of leads to our second product that, that as you hinted here is interest-based hyper-personalized mobile notifications. So what that just simply means is you tell us what you're interested in and we'll let you know when those interesting moments happen. So Alex can go in and say, hey, here's my Twitter and Instagram account and based off of who I follow, please alert me. Or during the buzzer onboarding phase of, hey, signing up, Alex Michael, I'm interested in NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, WNBA, and WSL. Here are my teams. Here are my players. Here's my fantasy roster or my bet slips later. Or you can just say, hey, I am from the New York metro area. Only alert me when New York sports are playing. And then lastly, to your point around how do we complement the broader ecosystem, we're building a unified authentication product. And what that just simply means is you tell me what you currently subscribe to, what you currently pay for, whether it be your cable subscription, ESPN Plus, Peacock, Paramount Plus, NBA League Pass, you know, and the list goes on. And authenticate those subscriptions. And if the live look-in falls within the rights that you already pay for, a la your subscription, it's free. Just use us as a curation and discovery tool. If not, then you pay the micropayment. This is a broader signal to the industry of, hey, we're here to complement the existing subscriptions out there. On the contrary, we're trying to teach user retention. If you as a subscriber find new value in your current subscription by curating and making those moments discoverable, and then guess what? It's free because you already pay for it via your subscription. There is a new value in that subscription. We also want to slow down the cord cutting that seems to be accelerating. Well, walk me through the user experience. So we, we talked about you sign up for your team in your league or whatever it is. You get notified. If you're already authenticated, great. You'll just get to watch it. It'll work through your app or you'll hand it off. It'll work through our app. Okay. Right now, we have a current partnership with the NBA via NBA League Pass. And in the coming weeks, you will be able to authenticate your League Pass subscription on Buzzbee. And so now all the live look-ins or all the notifications that we send you, they're free because you are a League Pass customer. Now, what if you pay the 99 cents? What happens then? You access that moment immediately. For example, yesterday, I, I stay up way too late now watching West Coast basketball games. The King's Sons, I actually was watching it on League Pass on my television. I turned it off because it was a blowout. The Suns were losing quite a bit. And then 30 minutes later, I get a notification saying that it's a three-point game. And then I see Harrison Barnes hit the buzzer. Our namesake, but also it's a moment that I would have lost. And, and I probably would have accessed that moment on Twitter and Instagram anyways. It was on Twitter multiple times this morning. Our appeal to rights holders is let us help you monetize these lightning in a bottle moments once more before it does become a widely distributed or even commoditized highlighter clip on Twitter, Instagram, and any other social channels out there. Just following on the 99 cents, can I do that on an unlimited basis or you can do it five times and then I have to be a subscriber to that service? Unlimited. But, but here's the thing, when you're thinking about 
the a la carte model, over a course of time, it should justify the economics of the subscription, right? Um, that's a very different example, but how am I on the Verizon Unlimited Data program? Because there was one month where I spent $250 on data overs charges. And guess what? Verizon called me and said, hey, do you know our uh, unlimited data program is $89.99? You spent $250 this month. So guess what? We'll give you your $250 back if you subscribe to $89.99 next month. Clever. That's proper marketing. That teaches loyalty. What if you have that moment where you are a big Cristiano Ronaldo fan and he's about to hit a PK for Manchester United? When you hear about that on Twitter, what part of you wants to subscribe to a $4.99 package? Probably not. You know, you're going to wait a few seconds and it's going to be a clip or a highlight on Twitter. But on the contrary, if I can make that very easily accessible while making the payments process very easy as well, you're going to do a few of those. And then Peacock could, you know, hypothetically contact you after a course of time and say, hey, Alex, you spent eight bucks on Peacock content. Do you know that Peacock's $4.99? We'll give your eight bucks back if you authenticate with us four ninety nine. We mean it in every sense of the word in terms of how we want to complement the ecosystem out there, whether it be a league, a network, a network with an SVOD or a subscription service, an OTT platform, even an MVPD or a cable operator. We want to work with everyone. And we've been very intentional about how we build the products and how we position these products in the marketplace because we do not want anyone to be friend about this. We're merely trying to go after a lost generation that has just simply have not engaged with live sports because we've made it so damn hard for them to access that. But why can't Apple do this? Why can't Twitter do this? You've raised quite a bit of money. I'm not the first one to ask this. I'm sure it comes up a lot. Apple does give you notifications now. Why can't a Roku do this? How do you answer that? Yeah, I mean, Apple right now is giving you notifications based off of the services that you download on your connected TV or Apple TV app. Hypothetically, yeah, you could. But you have to think about the balance of the broader ecosystem. There's a lot of balancing that is done, right? Sometimes doesn't go to the highest bid because you have to appease and balance the partnerships that you have with the broader networks. You see this balance even happening within an, even a company like Disney. You know, that owns um, ESPN, where ESPN's model is really driven by the affiliate revenue model uh, done with cable operators, but they also have a streaming business. Disney has a streaming business. There's a lot of balancing, even within a holding company. To your point about a network not being able to do this, if there's a great game on CBS, I simply don't see ESPN or NBC driving traffic to CBS because the entire model is built off an ad. So you want to make sure that you're optimizing for content or sports rights that you've paid a, a lot of money for. So, of course, they're going to promote their own games. Twitter can do that as well. You know, we're going to you know, move quicker and, and be agile and, and ship product. Well, you're going to be focused and you're going to have the best product experience and hopefully wrap up as a Switzerland of sorts and a creative element of the ecosystem. Hopefully everyone wants to come in. And I guess to that point, you've signed up the NBA. I just saw you did WNBA. You've got a couple more leagues. How are you going to get everyone to play? And do you need everyone to play to make this truly the home of what you're doing? Yeah, to your point, there are two strategic edges that we have. One is that we are neutral, meaning that we are going to create the ideal fan-centric experience, meaning that my priority is understanding what Alex likes and surfacing those moments that Alex likes. Second, to your point again, is we're an aggregator. But again, 
we have no intention of showing full games on our platform. We're 100% mobile, and no one wants to stare at their mobile screen for three, four hours extent of a time. We want to be short form. We want to be mobile. Essentially, we are creating a format that the younger generation consumes all other piece of content. I think that Gen Z has a bad rap of, we dismiss them saying they have poor attention span, they have attention deficit generation, but they're still binge watching Squid Game. They're still binge watching the Formula One Drive to Survive shows. They're just consuming all other pieces of content in a very different way. And we also have to just realize that the content landscape is extremely crowded. They're just too much to watch. How do we really optimize for content that you care about and make it discoverable in a very timely way. Because again, that moment is gone. It's a clip or a highlight on Twitter. In terms of the rights that we want to acquire, to your point, PJ Tour was our first partner. NHL was our second. NBA was our third. And WNBA was our fourth. NHL this past season, uh, not this season, but the season last year, we had two minutes per period of each of the three periods, including overtime. We found that 72% of people of our users that bought NHL moments were between 18 to 28 years old. That's a very powerful stat because the average age that watches NHL on television is 49. So you can see a very different subset of an audience that we are addressing. We want to be very clear. We don't want to split the TV audience. We want to augment this TV audience. We want to address an audience that television is not addressing. If you are a rights holder, and you can justify saying, hey, let's keep doing our TV deals. But we also have to invest in the future fan in a format, in a way that they consume content. Because the alternative here is watching clips or highlights that are commoditized on social platforms, or even worse, it's piracy. They pirate. It's a very widely known figure that's been thrown out. Piracy is a $28 billion global problem annually. That just simply signals that we as an industry are doing a better job of keeping audience out than keeping content in. Well, this is like sports betting in some ways, right? Everyone had to go elsewhere. And now as you've seen it legalized here, it's bringing it onto the platforms that are legalized, creating better experiences. It seems like something's there. The behavior's there. People are consuming it. They're just not necessarily consuming it in the traditional ways we've spoon fed them and now hopefully buzzer is a way to channel that audience yeah and alex you have kids if you're watching a football game on a given sunday afternoon what are your kids doing sitting next to you on the couch they're, they're not there yeah <laughs> they're not there <laughs> they're not there but even if they are they're not looking up they're looking down yep yep we can shout all we want about how they should be looking up and consuming three hours of content from a screen that's very foreign to or engage with them where they already are. That's how we see it. And also, you know, there's a lot of comparisons that we can draw from how the music industry has tackled piracy. But the one thing that, the key thing that we've learned from all that is that if we lower the barrier of access, meaning albums to songs, and we create a very convenient way to consume that content, back then it was the iPod. Of course, we all had like the FBI threats and you know, and, and, you know, the threat of a virus, you know, but what I'm trying to say is once we create convenience and ease of accessibility, piracy just kind of takes care of itself because when consumers are faced with going that extra mile with pirating the content, when the last mile is optimized for them in a very convenient way, in a personalized way, in a way that's already in their hands, what do you think they'll choose?
For us, it's how do we make it convenient? How do we make it easily accessible? But on the other side is how do we make this worthwhile for rights holders while we give them the riches of first-party data? We give them access to a generation that television is not normally addressing. And that's where I think our value proposition is very clear. And that is why I have broader aspirations of working with everyone. I love it. And I, I really like that look down versus look up. I think that's a very simple, but so I, I, anyone who's seen it knows what you're talking about. It's just so front and center with kids today. Speaking of looking up, a lot of people look up to you in terms of what you're building here. You've attracted, I think, 20 plus million of capital before you even had a live product, which is pretty amazing at pretty significant valuations. You have, I think, Sapphire Ledger last round. Yeah, I know Learner's in there, uh, a bunch of we're in there, as we mentioned. But then you have this whole cadre of incredible athletes and influencers, Michael Jordan, Patrick Mahomes. I'm looking at this list. I mean, it's incredible. Wayne Gretzky. Uh, how did you get these people to buy in so significantly without even a live product? And related to that, they must think you're onto something big. How does this become really big? So first, tell us about that fundraise, but then what is the big picture here? How is this a multi-billion dollar opportunity? Yeah, what you just talked about here is the end product, that $20 million Series A round. What's behind the scenes is, and, and Alex, you and I talked about this at length, is you know, we, we were living through a special moment in time where we're all at home, and I was doing 12 to 14 Zoom meetings a day. People were like, Zoom fatigue. I'm like, I love Zoom because it allows me to move quicker. If I'm coming to see you in D.C., that's one meeting, and I can maybe fit another. But there was a stretch of four months where I was doing 12 to 14 meetings a day. So don't be fooled by the amazing group of investors that we were able to do because, again, it's a volume game. The folks that really bought into the vision at the very beginning before there was a public product out there is that they bought into the vision of the future of how sports should be consumed. We will definitely have an audience. I don't think cable's going away. I don't think TV's going away. I think that there is that problem of how do we engage with that mobile first generation? Because we all grew up with our first device was the television. But when I look at my nephew, his first device is the mobile device. How are we optimizing content that we find so near and dear to a device that he consumes, that it's inherent? For the likes of Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan, they look at their kids and how they consume media, and they also want to invest in the sport. And also, we can also take a step back and think about the love of the sport is intergenerational, but the consumption of sport is not. How do we fix that, where we create that connection between generations? And I truly believe Buzzword can be that, because sports inherently is a social product. I'm willing to bet you, Alex, that when you've watched an exciting moment in sports live, you were telling someone about it. You were texting your buddies, you're on Twitter, you're in these group chats, you're texting, you're telling someone about it. How do we lean into that habit or inclination that you already have of wanting to tell someone about it? I look at it as built-in word-of-mouth marketing in you and using your kind of social connection. Sure. But the likes of Patrick Mahomes and Naomi Osaka and Lamelo Ball and Devin Booker and Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews, these guys are Gen Z. Yeah. They are our customers. So when I showed them the demo of the product, they're like, huh, this is how I consume content. This is how I consume sports. This is how I want to consume more sports. 
at the very beginning, we appeal to them, not from the vision or the future, but more of like, we met them now of like, this is me. This is now. This is how I consume. I think we often forget that our investors are also our customers. And so in many ways, they picked us because we hit a chord of how they consume content. And this is a little bit more, I guess, subjective and soft, but I think values and missions matter. I always say before we choose our investors or our teammates or coworkers, they choose us first. The values and the mission that we project out is very important. Sports is a community product. Buzzer is a community product. All we're doing at Buzzer is we're utilizing data to identify moments to bring people together. As a leader of this company, I have to embody community. I have to embody that value. That's something I've been working personally, working long and hard to make sure that I embody that because no matter how good of a product you have, if you don't embody that internally yourself first, it's going to be very authentic, you know, at some point. So tell me about your journey, Bo, because as I mentioned at the top, business school already not that risk averse, worked at Microsoft, big company, Twitter, big company, even when you started probably pretty big, then you start something, you take a leap. What was the inspiration beyond the business opportunity? And to your point of mission, how have you been able to instill that in a workforce that now I think numbers in the 20s or 30s, maybe more now, and is completely distributed? Yeah. So tell us about you know how you turn this on and then how do you put that in the walls, as my boss and leader here, REA, says. Yeah, I mean, Alex, we've grown a bit since we last had that lunch at Koreatown. We're at 54 people now. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. So 33 cities, 18 different states, so fully distributed. But, you know, just kind of starting from the very beginning, I'm a product of immigrants. I was born in Korea and came to this country just following my parents here, you know, like any other immigrant kid does, you know, at three years old. My parents came here in 1988 with nine bags and a few hundred bucks. And my sister was one and I was three. And we grew up in Nashville because there were grad school students at Vanderbilt. And then we grew up there until we were 12 and then went back to Korea for two years. It turns out that I didn't really adjust too well after growing up in the States. So my parents moved back to Chicago and that's where I finished out middle school and high school and went to Cornell. And in terms of leaning into risk, I think my parents started it all. Just picked up everything with a few hundred bucks, left everything that they knew and the family that they had and just came to this country because for us, it's always been about education and how do we optimize our kids for a better education? I grew up in the north side of Chicago in a very affluent area. We had no business living there. They found a second floor of a house that had a back door entrance, all because we wanted to go into the school district because they had heard that if we finished top 10%, we were going to be able to get into an Ivy League school or an equivalent. That's a kind of a simple stat. This is how my parents' mind work. When I got into Cornell, it was just not Harvard. When I got into Columbia, it was not Harvard. Anyways, my journey has been very much happenstance. When people say, how do you get into the sports industry? I'm like, my advice is not helpful for others because I was given an opportunity back then by our COO, Anthony Noto, who was the former CFO of the NFL, who was running the TMT division over at Goldman Sachs, actually took Twitter public. You know, he approached me and said, do you want to come and work for me? I was like, yes. And he was like, I need to tell you what. I was like, doesn't matter. Happened to be sports. You know, and I followed the individual and the character of that leader. Andy Noto gifted me an opportunity to work in sports rights. 
And I learned very quickly under him. For me, it's always been about how do I just stay in tune with the ever-changing consumer behavior, but also understand that within the context of the industry macro. Again, it's not about disruption. It's about complementing. In terms of just risking at all, yeah, I mean, I, I left Twitter after seven years. Very comfortable job. It's an amazing place to work at. Great culture. It's very hard to leave. Left a whole bunch of unvested stock. Liquidated my 401k, which for any finance people out there, you probably don't recommend. But for me, it's I wanted to go all in. And I wanted you know that expression of, you know, burn the ships. It's like there's no turning back. And right. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to go all in, I was going to be all in. And for you, when I interface with you, Alex, I want you to know that I'm all in, that there is no plan B for me. This is plan A, and I'm going to make it work. And I wanted to lead and live with that conviction. And that's why I believe I think Lion Tree and, and you kind of believed in me and the company. But, you know, of course, the opportunity. A hundred percent. For me, it's, you know, how do we do that? But second is, people are like, oh, how's it like? building a company during a pandemic. And I'm like, this is all that I knew. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I can sit around saying, well, it's me for creating a company that's focused on live sports. Like people forget last year we had no live sports. So I was like, man, you know, like, and so that also keeps into perspective. If I had the product out already, this would be dead in the water. Timing is everything. Pandemic happened. We had raised a $4 million seed round led by Lair Hippo and Sapphire Ventures co-led with them. And I was sitting there by myself in a WeWork with $4 million in the bank account. And I was like, okay, I feel one very guilty about this because people are losing jobs. People are getting laid off and I just closed a $4 million round. What do I do with it? And so that's where we started to kind of deploy capital in a meaningful way and started to make some very intentional decisions. First, I only wanted to hire people that are impacted or laid off by the pandemic, you know, laid off or furloughed. And so our first 11 employees, teammates were exactly that. Shortly after that, you know, George Floyd's run for murder happened and there was another racial reckoning in this country. And so for me, it was always thinking about sports has always been in the forefront of social change and a platform to really prompt just positive change. I really do feel like it's a platform that we've been all given. You know, look at last Sunday, Tom Brady going to a kid who was battling brain cancer and going up to him and just simple gesture of giving him a hat, a signed hat, I hope. But it's just like a signed hat. It's like you see the powerful platform that it has, that sports has, and the impact. I've always thought of Buzzer of how do we use Buzzer as a vehicle to drive equitable outcomes for everyone? That's where you know I went back to our early investors and said, hey, I want to change up the corporate structure of this company. We're, we're going to have a 1% model of 1% of the cap table dedicated towards further and advancing communities of color, specifically the Black, API, Latinx, Indigenous community. of our net profits are going to go towards our efforts. And later on, early next year, you'll probably see products like customer participation, where our consumers are able to round up their micropayments towards these very worthwhile initiatives. I just firmly believe that the foundation of how we build our company, the values that we start with, is very important. Because if you don't, you're going to move the goalposts. We all have this misconception of how we're going to do good when we do well. But guess what? That never happens. You do well because you do good first. And maybe I'm being idealistic here, but if I can really knock this out and show the next generation that wins and values are not mutually exclusive, I think I've done my part. 
If we can be that new blueprint of a startup where we say, hey, this is the formula and that will help you get amazing and accomplished investors and people to want to gravitate towards you because we as human beings, we want to gravitate towards good anyways. We like it. That's why we enjoy each other's company. We do. We want to gravitate towards good people. If we're going to change the landscape, change the world, why not just do it with good people? And that's my firm earnest belief. But Bo, I think you answered my question in a very powerful but roundabout way in the sense that I asked you, how do you get 54 people in this to, to work together, to do the mission? And you answered it, just not, I think, right on its head, but you did, which is you can't force it on people. You can't force mission. They can't be off in Denver or Dallas or New York. And you have to watch them to do the right thing and get the right result. They have to believe in what you're doing. And your job is setting that mission, those values. And if they resonate, if they're the right ones and you hire well, they will row and they will row in the same direction. Is that fair? That is very fair. You know what is very humbling? These last few weeks, I started to get cold emails from students and younger adults, as NZ specifically, saying how buzzer is their dream job. And I immediately in my head go, why? have a better dream, you know? (laughs) Bad answer. Yeah, but here's the fact of the matter, is that the next generation gravitates towards culture and goodness. They are value-led consumers. They are not a Laker fan. They are a LeBron James fan. Why? Because they gravitate towards what he believes. If people gravitate towards what I believe in, and I'm vulnerable about opening myself up to the world and to my team, absolutely. People say, what are you doing differently? The simple decision of hiring people that have been impacted by the pandemic, changing up our corporate structure, those are all small, in my mind, very small little decisions that when you kind of collect that off, you know, when you gather them together, it becomes a very powerful outcome. Makes a big deal. There's another thing that we do. Every day for 15 minutes, we have a thing called Team Hunt. And it's purely revolving around gratitude. We just go around, talk about what we're thankful for. You know, and everyone goes around each day picking a topic. Sometimes we talk about desserts that we're thankful for, or like Thanksgiving food that we're thankful for, or scary movies that we're thankful for. But it always goes back to like what we are getting perspective and putting everything through a lens of gratitude. I don't think there's anything more necessary than now. We need that. We need that perspective. I think those are small things, but I do think that that is what keeps the 54 people. And some of the people have never met each other. Yeah, can imagine. It really kind of turns it on its head in terms of how we think about how we bond with one another, even if we're not in the same room. And I think the last 18 months has taught us that it works. It seems to be. And Bo, I'm thankful for our friendship, our partnership. Certainly, we believe that there is a massive opportunity bringing this audience to this ecosystem in a new way. I'm sure there's lots of externalities too. We could get into betting and stuff like that. We won't go there now, but you know, needless to say, with the type of mission, values, and team you're building under your stewardship, the ceiling might be non-existent, but it's certainly incredibly high. And we're very excited and you certainly have the foundation here to grow very big. So before I let you go, we do a little quick hits here just to get a little bit more underneath who you are and some pop culture. Yeah. What is a show or two you're streaming right now that you want to share? Obviously, binge watch Squid Games because I'm a proud Korean. Is that mandatory if you're Korean, you have to watch? Yeah, I, t- I take away uh, people's Korean cards. You know, if they, <laughs> you know, they don't watch Parasite. 
you yeah. admitted to me you're starting to not eat meat, which I feel like you might have I to know. have. I yeah. know. It's like I make exceptions occasionally, but yeah, I, I, right now I'm eating around red meat. It's a temporary decision for Squid Games. I mean, the Formula One, the docuseries, not to be cliche, it's great. I try to like watch things that are uplifting, like the Queen's Gambit, Ted Lasso. All, all those things are very uplifting. I'm sorry to be super down the line. Book. Is there a book you're reading or recommend? You know, every year I read John Wooden's book. It's called John Wooden, the UCLA yeah, coach. The yeah. UCLA coach. And he has just very simple adages that just speak to my heart. Okay. I read that annually. It's short. It's a 100-page book. What's it called? Wooden. Wooden. Just Wooden. Yeah. Okay. Podcast. Podcast. Well, I'm going to plug in our podcast that we started called You Late, which is run by our social voice, Jasmine Watkins. Shout out to Jasmine. She is the incredible talent behind our Twitter handle, but also who knew that she was an incredible just podcaster, you know, a podcast host. She talks 10 to 15 minutes, the quick hits about what happened last night. All right, you late, the buzzer podcast. All right, Bo, we're going to get you off the hot seat here. Can't thank you enough for spending a little bit of time here. The business is buzzer. It is live. Check it out doing good, doing well, mission values, and hopefully an incredible amount of business success along the way. So Bo, thank thank you you again. All right, thanks so much, Alex. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. 